I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but today is the 100th anniversary of the Negro League Baseball, and uh, I am rocking my sweet Detroit Stars Negro League jersey to commemorate that, and also as a little introduction into this morning's message. A hundred years ago, in fact, less than a hundred years ago, it was commonly accepted that black men not only shouldn't play baseball with white men, but actually they couldn't play baseball with white men. And the vast majority of Americans thought that that was okay. Now, I'm not saying everybody did, but most did. In fact, most didn't even really give it much thought at all. Because that's simply the culture that everyone lived in. Uh, this is a comic. You may have seen this before. It's a picture of uh, an older fish swimming by two younger fish, and the older fish says, Morning, boys. How's the water today? And the other two fish look at each other and say, What in the heck is water? This is actually uh, how David Foster Wallace started off uh, one of the most famous commencement speeches ever given. David Foster Wallace was uh, probably the most brilliant literary mind of the last 50 years. He passed away back in 2008 uh, at the young age of 46 years old. Uh, he still studied, read, watched today. In fact, this commencement address is one of the most read and watched commencement addresses of the last half century. And in it, he actually shares something that I think is incredibly valuable for us to think about this morning. Now, uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, I don't think he would have even considered himself religious like at all. He was raised uh, as an atheist. Uh, David Foster Wallace uh, certainly would not have described himself as a Christian, but he was on to something. So I'd like for you guys to listen to just a two-minute clip from that 2005 Kenyan College commencement address. Go ahead and take a listen to this. What has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, 
you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. We fall into patterns of worship without ever being fully aware that that's what we're doing. Uh, James K.A. Smith wrote the book that we talked about last week and we'll discuss a little bit this week. You are what you love. We all worship what we love, whether we realize it or not, whether we take time to pay attention to the water that we're swimming in or don't. In uh, Smith's book, You Are What You Love, he, he gives an illustration that helps us begin to understand how these different uh, societal, cultural uh, things that we put in place actually begin to shape our loves by telling us what to worship and how to worship. These liturgies. Uh, have you ever considered the mall as a place of worship? Now, some of you are like, what's a mall? I only shop on Amazon. Look, most of you have been to a mall at least one time or another, and it's still a hangout for kids in middle school and high school. They like to go, walk around, check things out. Uh, Smith spends a few pages just talking about how malls are actually designed and built so that we will look up to skylights that still don't actually show us the sky. Uh, they will close off windows to the outside so that we don't actually notice the mundane around us, but simply have all these places and social spaces for us to meet and congregate and be with others and find redemption. He says there's four things that malls actually do for messages that they are constantly giving us that we find ourselves falling into. The first one he says is, I'm broken, therefore I shop. I'm broken, therefore I shop. Do you see how like the images uh, that you see when you walk into a mall or pretty much any store of these beautiful, happy people that are feeling, looking fulfilled and enjoying the greatest pleasures in life and they all look wonderful and skinny and they've got great smiles and perfect skin and the whole time they're insinuating something to you. The whole time they're saying, this isn't you. And we know it, and you know it. Smith says, at the same time that these perfect images, these icons of happiness are subliminally telling me what's wrong with myself, they're also championing ideals that run counter to the Bible. As such, the liturgies of the market and mall convey a stealthy message about my own brokenness and then also my need for redemption. But they do so in a way that plays off the power of shame and embarrassment. You don't match up. You're not quite good enough, but we've got a remedy. He says the second tenet that the mall teaches us, the second liturgy, is that I shop with others. I shop with others. Now, you might show up by yourself, right? Those of you that even go online, you're by yourself with your computer, but you still see how many people bought it. How many people said this was a four-star or a five-star? And at the mall, it's even more so. In fact, we often even see this, especially with the younger uh, folks when they're going to meet up with their friends. 
We're all keeping score. Uh, you see what happens? Uh, if you see like a, a, a little pod of maybe like 10th grade girls, okay? And, and, and then another one will walk in and invariably what will happen, and this happens with boys too, I'm just choosing to say girls right now, but uh, when the person who's new walks in and they're not looking, the other girls will give her a quick once up and down and they're keeping score. Is her hair better than mine? Do I have more expensive clothes? Are the name brands that I'm wearing better than her name brands? Are my shoes more expensive? Am I thinner or fatter? Am I better looking? Is my makeup better? Did I apply it better? Uh, is my skin, my smile, my teeth, right? They're adding all these things up to see, did I win or did I lose? And we do that so much with all of these relationships that we find at the mall. Not only that, but we're really triangulating ourselves against the perfect images that are being plastered all around us. People having fun, living these fulfilled, amazing lives, and they're happy, and they're smiling, and they're fit, and they're perfect. And nobody tells us that it's because a computer got rid of all the blemishes and shrunk some things down and made other things bigger. Like, nobody says that, but that's what we're comparing ourselves with. And so we know we're going to lose against that, so we also compare ourselves with others. Does he have as big a muscles as I do? Is his teeth as straight or worse? Is his hair nicer than my hair? Like we are now turning everything into a competition and we don't even realize it. This is what the mall is training us because it's telling us that we don't match up. So then we have to keep seeing, well, am I actually better? Uh, Smith actually says this. He says, subtly then, we've construed our relationships largely in terms of competition against one another and against the icons of the ideal that have been painted for us. In the process, we've also objectified others. We've turned them into artifacts for observation and evaluation, things to be looked at. And when we play this game, we've also turned ourselves into similar sorts of objects, and we've evaluated ourselves on the basis of our success at being objects worth looking at. Am I an object worth looking at? That's one of the secret subtle things that the mall is teaching us. The third thing is I shop and I shop and I shop, therefore I am. Uh, the mall is subtly telling us the places that we fall short where we don't quite measure up, where we're not quite like the model, right? Places that we fail, but it's also telling us how we can fix the problem. Buy something, consume. Now we know that like when we look at those pictures, we're like, all right, like even their lives can't be perfect, but maybe if I had what they had, maybe my life wouldn't be quite, maybe I wouldn't look quite as perfect, they'd be quite as happy, but it certainly would get me a little bit further. It certainly would take me a little, like if I just had that new outfit, right? That new thing, the new iPhone, the new whatever, then I would, it couldn't hurt at least. Uh, the problem with all of this, of course, is that the mall is trying to tell you that you have a need and that if you buy something, that's the cure. But we all know that it only lasts for a little while. Right? That sweet new jacket you got is dirty in a couple of months. And you're like, oh, it's not the same. That feeling we had when we walked out with that thing in the bag three months later no longer makes us feel the same way. Or even worse, you wore it five times last year, but now it's out of date. Right? Oh, that's so five minutes ago. I can't wear it again. And we get rid of things before they've even come close to being no longer useful. 
Smith says this. He says, by our immersion in this liturgy, right, these habits of consumption, we're being trained to both overvalue and simultaneously undervalue things. We're being trained to invest them with a meaning and significance as objects of love and desire in which we place disproportionate hopes. Oh man, this thing's going to make my pear shape go away, going to make my butt bigger, going to make my butt smaller, right? We put all these hopes into these things that we think are going to do something for us, and of course they can't, while at the same time treating them, as well as the labor and raw materials that go into them, as easily discarded. He says a fourth tenet, and these aren't the only four things that the mall is teaching us and how to worship. He says is don't ask, don't tell. These are four important things or things that we can pay attention to. But this don't ask, don't tell, this is kind of the dirty secret with all shopping centers, with all, in many ways, often shopping in and of itself, is that the mall doesn't want us to look behind the curtain. The mall doesn't want us to actually see where our products are coming from. The mall doesn't want us to ask, what's the real cost to people in the developing world? What's the real cost to the environment. Is this actually sustainable? While America takes up about 5 to 7% of the world's population, we consume around 25% of its resources. That's not possible for everyone to enjoy the lifestyle that we're accustomed to living. He says, the mall's liturgy fosters habits and practices that are unjust so it does everything it can to prevent us from asking such questions. Don't ask, don't tell, just consume. Now, of course, when you show up at the mall, they don't tell you any of this, right? There's no messages. There's nobody preaching over the loudspeakers. Nobody hands you a pamphlet that says, welcome to the mall. Here's our statement of beliefs and our theology of consumption. Please read through it to understand what we're doing. Nobody says that, right? Why? Well, because the mall is actually so much better at helping us do things without thinking about it. That's what it does. The way that it teaches us to worship consumption is way more effective than simply talking about it. They get us to practice habits which form loves. Smith says the point is that the tenets of a consumer gospel are caught rather than taught. The ideals are carried in the practices, not disseminated through messages. This is how our loves are shaped. Loves are not primarily feelings. Loves are not primarily thoughts. Loves are habits. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at a very, very familiar passage to a lot of you. For those of you that are not as familiar with church or the Bible, uh, Corinthians is a letter that this guy named Paul, we call him the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a huge city in the Roman Empire, a really powerful city in the Roman Empire. Paul had planted a church there, and he writes them a couple of letters. Because if you think that you've seen a messed up church, I promise you, you've never seen a church as messed up as Corinth was, all right? But they were on the path, just like we're on the path. We're growing, we're learning, we're transforming. Paul writes this letter the first one he writes to them, he wants them to understand what love actually is. And so that's why it's a pretty famous passage. Even if you didn't know that this was what we were about to read in 1 Corinthians 13, you've probably heard some of these words before. Read it along, or read it with me as I read. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not, uh, does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. 
Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God is describing to us what love is, but what we find is that love is not simply actions. Love is virtues, right? Being patient or humble or kind or selfless or trusting or persevering or always hoping. Those aren't mere actions. Those are actually virtues. And virtues are simply good moral habits, okay? We talked about that last week. A virtue is a good moral habit. So if loves are virtues and virtues are habits, the reality is if you want to change your loves, you have to change your habits. If you want to change your loves, you have to change your habits. Simple, right? (laughs) Oh, if it were, if it were. Last week I told you that there's really two ways that we reform or reshape our loves. Two important things that the Bible teaches. Now, I'm not saying that these are the only ways that we reform our loves, but these are two important ones that Scripture talks about quite a bit. Imitation and practice. Imitation and practice. Uh, Since you have your Bibles open, just flip back two chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want us to read verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul, and he's trying to help these crazy Christians at this church in Corinth learn how to be more like Jesus, how to reform their own loves, okay? Look what he says in verse 1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. We have always needed people to imitate. Jesus said this at the very beginning. Jesus said, follow me. Do what I do. Act like I act. Say what I say. Jesus said, follow me. And now Paul is telling Christians who are coming up behind him, follow me as I follow Christ. And he doesn't just say it in this one place. In fact, Paul says it in a number of places. He says it in, uh, again in Corinthians in another spot. He says it in Galatians. He says it in his first letter to the Thessalonians, the second letter to the Thessalonians, another city, other churches. He also says it to the church in Philippi. Flip with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. It's going to be just a a few books over. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, someone to look at, to imitate, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Jesus says, follow me. Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. And he also says, and follow other people who are acting like us. Now, now the word that actually Paul uses here is, is not actually the word follow. This is actually one time I'm, I don't like the NIV's translation quite as much as I like the ESV's translation, but it doesn't really matter. It's just good to know that the Greek word is the word mimiotai, and it means to mimic. What Paul is saying is imitate me, mimic me, right? You ever seen like... Uh, a bear at the zoo, and sometimes you can get it to like do the same thing you're doing, or sometimes monkeys will also, they're, they're imitating, they're mimicking, right? Little kids do that all the time. They imitate and mimic their parents, the people that they see around them. Paul's saying, imitate me, mimic me, do what I'm doing. And this is something that we've talked about for you know thousands of years as Christians from the very beginning. We've been talking about saints, 
You ever wonder why there's all these saint this and saint that? And if you go into, uh, especially in the old church, you'll see saints painted, stained glass windows of saints. And saints are just heroes of the faith. They're the kind of people that Paul's talking about when he says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. I named my youngest son after a saint. I hope that when he grows up, he'll learn more about what St. Maximilian Kolbe actually lived his life for and what he did and that he will imitate and model his life after St. Maximilian Kolbe. That's why I gave him that namesake. We need people that we're going to imitate, people that we can look at and watch to see how they live and what they do so that we can imitate our lives after them. So who are your heroes? Who are, your, who are the people that you look up to? Do you have any Christian heroes? Like anybody from the last 100 years or 500 years that you've like, learned about and you're like oh man that that chick she was amazing like what she did how she lived her life I want to be like that I want to I want to I want to add some of what she did in her life into my life I want to learn so I can imitate mimic uh most of the time our heroes are the things that we like spend a lot of time with right sometimes it's people that we watch on tv like our athletes fashion icons Maybe some of your heroes are fitness trainers or great chefs or business leaders or real estate leaders or whatever it is that you're doing for work. And you look at people that are really successful and you're like, that's my hero. That's who I want to be like. I want to act like them, do the things that they do. Who do you follow on Instagram? What, what shows are you watching on TV? Now, none of, the, none of this stuff is bad, okay? Don't, don't, don't get it twisted. That's not necessarily bad, but if you are making heroes in your life out of people who primarily love something more than they love Jesus, then you are actually creating habits for yourself that are going to lead to a life that will never fulfill. Friends, that's just truth. I'm not saying that you can't look up to somebody else, right? Every time my kids get a piece of paper that they crumple up, they always... Kobe, <laughs> right? I grew up watching Michael Jordan. I cannot imitate barely a single thing he does, but I can stick my tongue out when I play basketball, and so I did all the time, right? Like, we all find ourselves doing that. But ask yourself, who am I actually giving space in my mind, in my heart, that I'm trying to emulate, imitate, look up to? Who are my heroes? Do I have the right heroes in the right places? Now, it's not only our heroes that we imitate, though, is it? It's also the people that we surround ourselves with. It's kind of funny because we want to all kind of feel like we stand out, and yet you go to certain places, and everybody's attempt to stand out means they've all dressed the same, right? You go to a country club, and it's all breathable khakis and polos. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody. And you go to Founders on a Friday night, it's all denim and boots and more denim, right? All right, it's just like the way that it is, Okay. Everybody's dressed in all black, right? Because we want to be different, yet we all look exactly the same. I can make fun of it because that's me too. I fall into the exact same thing. Whoever we surround ourselves with will absolutely affect our habits, the things that we love. Uh, 
Scripture's been saying this forever. Look at these passages. You don't even have to turn to them because I'm going to fly through them. Proverbs 12, 26. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Proverbs 22, 24 to 25. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Don't associate with one easily angered, or you may learn their ways and get yourself ensnared. Proverbs 13, 20. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. James 8.15, if you want to soar like an eagle, don't run with turkeys. I'm kidding. That's not in the Bible. That's actually, there is no James 8.15. That was actually a bumper sticker that was on my church bus. No joke. (laughs) I saw that when I was growing up. But it's true. If you want to soar like an eagle, don't run with turkeys. This is a quote um, that I heard a, a while back. I don't know where it comes from, but I know that it's absolutely true. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Look, if the people that you hang out with don't have a whole lot of time for Jesus, they think church is antiquated and not all that important, they're not engaging in God's word very often, I'll I'll tell you exactly where you're going to be 10 years from now. If, if all your friends are super passionate about how big their house is and how much money they make at their job and uh, what kinds of toys that they have, I can guarantee where you're going to be 10 years from now. If your friends are super passionate about Jesus and wanting to know him and engaging in his word and trying to actually live out their faith, I can also tell you where you're going to be in 10 years Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. Now, some of you are like, oh, dang, I I need some new friends. Yeah, you probably do. You're like, oh, whoa, oh, that's the kind of church you are? You're just telling me to kick all my friends to the side? Doesn't Jesus love them? Shouldn't I love them? Yeah, absolutely. I love chocolate, but I shouldn't be eating it all the time, okay? I do. (laughs) But I shouldn't, all right? That's just like, hey, we always have to limit our connection to things. If you don't want cancer, don't smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. If you want to love Jesus, hang out with people who love Jesus and, and still love your friends that maybe don't love Jesus right now where he's not the number one thing. They still need to see that in you, but you might need to limit how much time you spend with them. If that's where you're spending most of your time, look, Twinkies and chips, like that's convenient and cheap and fast, and it's always there, but you shouldn't eat it all the time. So just because your friends are like, hey, we want to go partying, and they're an easy group to go hang out with, and nobody else seems to want to hang out on a Friday night, well, don't just instantly say yes. You're going to go out to the bar with them one night? Fine. Pay attention. Don't just do everything that they do. But don't do it every night or every week. Show me your friends, and I'll show you your future. That's really scriptural. Now, the second way, and the last thing I want to talk about today is we create new habits, new love, new loves through practice, through practice, imitation and practice. Um, I used to have a mini fridge that was next to my bed when I was a bachelor before Brenda and I were married. And in this mini fridge, I kept two things and pretty much only two things, caffeine-free diet Pepsi 
and fun-sized Snicker bars. And every night, sometime between usually 2 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning, I would wake up, I would take a swig of Diet Pepsi, I would eat one, maybe two Snickers, and I would fall back asleep. It didn't help that there was also a Burger King on the corner of where I lived. Needless to say, I developed some pretty bad eating habits during that time, all right? Uh, All of those eating habits have continued to follow me. Now, I'm maybe not quite that bad, but I still wake up more nights than not and will walk to the kitchen, get a swig of caffeine-free diet, and often a couple of chocolate almonds. It's so sad. And I go back to bed. It's terrible. I know, I know, I know, I know. This is like public confession time right now. Um, I know I'm supposed to eat better, okay? I've seen documentaries, all right? I I watched Super Size Me. I didn't go to McDonald's for like three days. Seriously, (laughs) I didn't. It's like huge willpower. And uh, I've read lots of articles, but simply knowing that you're supposed to eat better and actually eating better are not the same. Look, I want to be skinny, but I want chocolate more most of the time. It's not enough to simply want it. If I don't change my habits, I'm not going to change my loves. And the only way I can change my habits is through practice. And this is true of any endeavor in life. Whether it's physical, mental, or spiritual. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. This is from the ESV. Uh, The same guy, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Corinthians, he also wrote a letter to his protege, Uh, the guy that he was mentoring, that he loved so much. His name was Timothy. And uh, he has just shared with Timothy Timothy, some uh, virtues that he wants him to build into his life. And look at what he says in verse 15 and 16. He says, practice these things, Timothy. Practice them. Immerse yourself in them so that everybody might see your progress. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist, persevere, don't give up, persist in these things. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's like, look, man, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to have people that are going to look up to you, then practice these virtues, man. Keep going at them. Immerse yourself in them. Don't give up on them, even when it's hard. Even when you want to give up, just keep doing it. I hate running. I don't like it. I actually, for most, it's mainly a theological reason. I believe God created running only when something's chasing you. Like that's the only reason God ever allowed us to run. But uh, I do know that times when I have started making myself, forcing myself into the habit of running, which I won't lie to you, I'm not doing right now, but I need to, I ought to, it always is hard, right? At first I'm like feeling great. I'm just like, boom, 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 boom. And then I get like to the end of my driveway and then all of a sudden I'm like walking, you know, <sighs> like that. But after a while, you start to actually not hate it. And I don't know that it ever quite gets fun, but it gets better. And that's the whole point of practices. They're not always fun at the beginning, but the more that we do them, the more we say this matters, that begins to change our habits. Changing our habits changes our loves And what we love is what we do, and what we love is what we become. Um, 
this week I want to give you guys two things to do. Now, you don't have to do both of them. Pick one or the other. But I was thinking about this as I was preparing this message. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm basically doing the exact opposite of what I'm saying. I'm giving you a whole bunch of things to think about rather than to do, right? I want to see our loves transformed and changed to be more like Christ. So uh, I want you to pick one of these two things to do, okay? The first one is this week I want you to find a spiritual hero, okay? Do a little bit of research. Find somebody that you're like, oh, that chick, that dude, he had a crazy cool life. He did something crazy. Like, I don't know if I could ever do what he did. Learn about that person, all right? Find out what made them tick. Read a little bit about their story, what they did, and then figure out how you can become a little bit more like them this week. How can you become a little bit more like that person this week? The second thing I want you to do, this is like an A or B or maybe A and B, whatever, it's up to you, is start a new habit, okay? Pick a virtue that you'd like to work on a little bit more and practice it. So maybe it's patience, okay? If it's patience, then just commit this week. This week, I'm driving the speed limit everywhere, all right? You might get honked at. It's okay. You're practicing patience, all right? Maybe it's generosity, and you're going to say, this week, I'm going to be generous. So every day, I'm going to give something that is meaningful to me, to someone else, or to, and maybe you're going to find one day an organization that you like, but you've never given money to, and you're just going to, it doesn't have to be big, but you're going to give them something. You're going to give something to your neighbor. You're going to be generous to your spouse, or, or to your kids, or to whatever, a coworker. Maybe it's going to be service. You're going to serve your neighbor. What is it? I don't know. Pick a virtue and say, I'm going to practice it once every day this week. Come up with a plan. Come up with a list. Now, uh, this, whether you pick A or B, I want you to do, which is tell somebody what you're doing so you can hold each other accountable. Tell somebody what you're doing so that you can hold somebody accountable. Okay? Because quite honestly, you're really unlikely to do it unless somebody else knows and they can remind you, all right? You might have all the best intentions in the world. I often do, and then I just flat out forgot. Not that I didn't want to do it. Not that I was wussing out. I just forgot to do it. Well, tell somebody else. That's going to help with that. Now, next week, uh, I'm going to have the privilege of sharing with you the key ingredient to develop and continue new habits. Because, like, developing and continuing habits, like, that's where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to think about it. It's one thing to even do it once. It's a whole other thing to do it time after time after time. And the Bible actually gives us one key ingredient that is massively, overwhelmingly helpful in doing this. And not only that, it's also, coincidentally, one of the ways that we find people to imitate. And I'm super excited to be able to talk about that with you next week. Friends, what would it look like what would it look like in our church if we took this concept of practice and imitation to heart? Like each and every one of us. How would that change this community of believers? How would that change our loves and the things that our lives are pointing towards? How would that have ripple effects into the neighborhoods and communities, into this city of Grand Rapids, if we took this serious? I want to. And I want to be a part of a church that says, all right, I don't know if I'm going to be perfect, but I'm going at it. Friends, let's be that church. Just imagine 
how God will use us. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us, for your care, for your kindness, for the fact that you don't give up on us, that you have your, uh, us as your love. And so everything you do is to see us flourish and grow, and you're continuing to do that, Spirit, through the work that you're doing in our hearts, in our minds. God, we know that we live in a culture, this water, that is constantly habituating us to believe in a lesser life. To think that the good life is found in the American dream. We know, Jesus, that it's not. Jesus, don't let us fall for lesser visions of the good life. Let us see and taste and experience the kingdom, the Jesus dream. That's the only place that we will ever find the kind of fulfillment that you designed us to experience. Help us, God. Help us do the hard work of practice. Give us people to look up to that we can imitate our lives after. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done and are doing. It's in your beautiful and powerful name we pray. Amen.